The following message by Pastor Spencer is brought to you by Together in Christ. We're going to begin this uh, summer with a series in the Psalms. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, Together, we're going to read this psalm and uh, walk through it together. The opening, it gives the little uh, description of the psalm at the very beginning before verse one. It says, to the choir master. So this was a psalm that was written to be sung by the Levitical choir at the temple. A psalm of David, David wrote it, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this is written David meditating and reflecting upon the whole scandal that happened because of his sin in the situation with Uriah and Bathsheba. And he writes this, have a mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal to us your Son and that the Son would reveal to us you, Father, and that the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son would raise the dead to life this day and strengthen the weak knees and hearts of your people and bless us on account of the blood of Christ alone. For Christ's sake, amen. This psalm that we go through today is like so many others written by David. 
the famous king of Israel. It's a psalm that we are told the background to and we are given a title, so to speak, from the very beginning. David opens up right away with his psalm in verse one and says, have mercy on me, O God. And really, the whole psalm is simply an exposition of that phrase. Have mercy, God, upon me. This is a psalm that shows the prayer, the experience of a sinner with the Most High God and what it looks like and what it ought to be. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant, overflowing, overwhelming, great mercy. So David right away is going to teach us about the mercy of God. It's interesting, um, perhaps whenever they would sing this psalm at the temple, at the, when the Levitical choir, there was a special choir that was to sing the praises of God. And it could have been that the title of the scripture was the first line of the verse, of the psalm. And so you can imagine the priest saying, all right, let's sing, have mercy on me, O God. And the choir would begin, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The psalm also gives us an explicit Uh, description of the background to this psalm. David wrote this psalm to the choir master. Um, It's a reflection, his deep reflection uh, upon uh, what happened to him at a particular point in his life. And And it tells us that it's about when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Many of you know the story and you can read about it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. King David is the righteous, godly, honorable king of of Israel. And we're told that he had committed adultery with the wife of one of his most faithful soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was a good guy, an honorable man. And the woman that David took got pregnant with David's child. David then tried to cover up his sin, we're told. He ultimately tried to get Uriah to come home so it would look like it was Uriah's baby, but Uriah was too righteous. And so Uriah had to be eliminated. David handed Uriah the order that would lead to his death. With Uriah dead on the battlefield, it seemed as if everything was going to work out all right. David eventually marries Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. She's now a widow. And David's scandalous sin seems to have been covered up. He thought that his reputation as the holy king of Israel hadn't suffered much damage or disgrace. And it's amazing, but it seems that he lived this way for about a year. A year. Having committed adultery, murder, lying, harming the nation, blaspheming God for a year. Until one day. And we're told the Lord, not David asked for Nathan, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the prophet of God, the messenger, and he brought God's word to David and told him a little parable. And confronted David with his sin and told him, you are guilty. You are the man. 
God has greatly blessed you, David. How could you have despised God's word to do such a wicked, evil thing? God knew, even if no one else did, that David had struck down Uriah with the sword and stolen his wife. David couldn't hide from God. And he told David, your secret sin is going to have public consequences for yourself and for your family. And David right then and there knew that he deserved to die. He, he acknowledged at that moment, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's amazing. Right after that, Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. What? You shall not die. David would suffer serious consequences for his sin, but Nathan told him right away the word of the Lord, your sin has already been taken care of. It's been put away. And so he received God's grace. Psalm 51 is David's reflection upon all that's happened, and it's his reflection that he's written this psalm for the people of God then and for the people of God for all time, that we would be singing along with David and that he would lead us through this psalm to understand the grace that he experienced in his life as well. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first thing David leads us to do after his prelude in verses one through two, he leads us in this psalm, first of all, to know our sin in verses three through six. Have mercy upon me, O God. And now he begins to tell us, wash me, Lord, cleanse me from my sin. Well, why, David? Why are you saying this? David says in verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David wants us to sing with him and says, we must know our sin. First of all, we in knowing our sin, he says, we must know what we have done. David says, I know my transgressions. It's ever before me. David knows the crimes he has committed. These are not crimes simply against humanity. They are crimes against divinity. He has rebelled against God. He has broken God's law. He's spat in God's face. There are different ways that the Bible describes sin for instance, it can describe it as transgression. In other words, sin is like rebellion against a rightful authority. It's opposing God. It's defying God. It's daring God. It's also described as not meeting the standard of God's law. Um, the, the, the idea is, is, you know, like you have target practice with an arrow and you have the target there and someone takes the bow and the arrow and shoots it. Well, they should shoot at the target and hit bullseye. But sin is whenever we miss every time. We don't hit the target, missing the target. Sin is also described as iniquity. It's described as being crooked, perverse, deviating from God's commands. Sin is breaking the law of God. Sin is anything 
that does not match God's command. Anything that breaks God's law and anything that does not perfectly harmonize and match with what God wants from us, who, what we ought to do, or also who we ought to be. Anything that does not conform or harmonize with who God is and what he requires of us, that is sin. And David says right now, my sin is haunting me. My sin is ever before me. I know what I did. It's almost as if the ghost of Uriah is standing right there. And I know what I did. I know whenever I handed him that order that was going to send him to the front line of battle so that he, my faithful soldier, who was going to lay down his life for me, the king, he would be butchered and I knew it. And I stole his wife and I lied to the nation and I went to the temple countless times in between all this and acted like I was religious. I know my transgressions. It's ever before me. David says we need to know God's law and know that we have not done it. He knows what's right, but he hasn't performed it. Secondly, he also says, I know sin because I know against whom I have sinned. In verse four, he says, against you, speaking to God, you only, you alone, you, no one else have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David leads us not simply to know what we have done, but against whom we have done it. You see, your sin does affect other people in this world. It affects your family and your neighbors and people all around you in countless ways that we don't even know. But David says, ultimately, ultimately, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what he said right away whenever Nathan confronted him with his sin. What did he say? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, it's one thing for you to sin against other people. You shouldn't do that. But every single time you do something that is wrong or your will is not in line with God's will, you have sinned against him. And David here is leading us and dragging us before the Holy One, the judge of all the earth. Last night I was in bed and I noticed on the wall there was some flashing. I didn't know what it was. We live next to a busy street and you just never know if it's cars or whatever. It kept coming and so I got up and looked. You know what it was. Clouds. Streaks of lightning shooting down through the sky lighting up portions of the sky with those dark clouds. It's interesting, with all of our technology and with all the things that we've made, there's almost this primal instinct in us that when we see storms, we realize how small we are. We can make our life very comfortable here, and we forget that we really shouldn't be impressed with the works of our hands, but with the power of God. God is described in the Psalms as one, we're told that clouds and thick darkness are all around him. That fire goes before him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And we are told his lightnings light up the world. 
The earth sees and the earth trembles. David is leading us into the presence of the Holy One. And if you do not tremble now, you will tremble one day. You see, God sees through all of your pretensions, all the fakeness, all the self-deception and the deception that you deceive other people with. He sees you as you really are. You may deceive others, and David knows that he tried to deceive himself, but he couldn't, and God found him out. You will never deceive the one who sees all things and the one who does all that he desires to do. And David says, you are right in your words. Whenever he says, you are blameless in your judgment, Lord, your condemnation of me is exactly right. I am a sinner and I deserve eternal fire in hell. David begins to think about it. Where did it go wrong? Have you ever thought about that? With your life. Sometimes you're like, where did I go wrong? Or when you did something and so, or some incident happened, you're like, how did this happen? Where did everything get messed up? Where did all of this start? How did I get into this mess? David leads us not simply to know what we have done, not simply know whom we have sinned against, but also to know in our sin, the root of our sin, where did it all begin? Where, what was I thinking? Well, maybe we would think um, with David, we would say, well, David, it, it all began whenever you first took your Bathsheba into your house. Or maybe it was first whenever you asked the question about who she was. Or maybe it was when you first saw her. Or, or maybe it was whenever you weren't out in the battlefield when you should have been, whenever it was customary for kings to be out there fighting and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. David is tracing the root of his sin and he keeps going back and back and back and he leads us to the root of our sin as well and he says this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David looks at his whole life and he says, you wanna know when it all went wrong? You wanna know when I became a sinner? It was when I was conceived. David realizes his sin is not primarily all the little individual things he did. Those are simply the fruit of a heart that is bent on evil. What's worse, the fruit or the tree that bears the fruit? It's the tree. Remember Jesus uses that analogy in Matthew chapter seven, that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. And David says, I'm a bad tree. I'm a bad root. This goes much deeper than simply a bunch of little diddly things that I've done wrong. The problem isn't simply that I've done things that are wrong. The problem is, is that I am defective myself. This is found elsewhere in the scripture, Genesis 8, 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 58, three, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Jesus taught us that it is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And Paul would write to Titus about our former state as sinners. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions 
and pleasures. I have a bad heart. I am dead in sins and transgressions, and I am bent on breaking God's law. And David finds it. No, and the question is, well, is this, so it's not my fault. I was made this way. And the Bible says, no, no, no. You weren't made that way, but because of Adam's sin, you are this way now. And that's exactly what David also teaches us in verse six. It's not God's fault. Behold, you delight, God, in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This isn't God's fault that I am unable to do anything good. It's my fault. God has actually told me what he delights in, and it's good. He delights in truth in my heart, not simply with my hands. God is about what is on the inside and also then what flows from that to the outside. And he's told us what he expects of us and what delights him. Paul would say elsewhere that the work of the law is written on every single one of your hearts. You know what's right and what's wrong innately, but you can't do it. So David, first of all, is leading us to know our sin. And it's only when we know our sin that the next section is going to be good news. Because if you don't think the first section is that bad, the second section doesn't have to be that good. He knows what he's done. He knows against whom he's done it. And he knows the root is himself. And that he was born in iniquity. My children and your children were born as sinners. Defective in that sense from birth. And guilty in God's sight. And only through the blood of Christ can any be saved. So David leads us to despair, to despair of ourselves, to try, uh, give up trying to earn God's favor, to think that we can keep ourselves clean or keep his law because there is nothing good within us and all of us will face the judgment day in the future. But he teaches us where salvation is found, not in reforming myself, but in trusting and in counting upon the grace of God in verses seven through 12. He opens up here and says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He'll say in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We could reflect on any number of these, these verbs and things that he's asking God to do, but we're just going to focus on a few of them. First of all, he asks God and he trusts God and counts on God to cleanse him from sin's pollution, to cleanse him from sin's pollution. He says, purge me with hyssop, wash me. Notice, first of all, David doesn't say this. David doesn't say, Lord, I'll do better. Lord, I will wash myself and I will make myself clean in your sight. Lord, I will purge my heart of all bad thoughts and all bad desires and do nothing wrong anymore. Lord, I will make myself new in your sight. He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, if any of this is going to happen, you're going to have to do 100% of it. You're going to have to do your purging work. You're going to have to do your washing work and I will be clean. So he looks to the Lord and says, Lord, you must do it all and I'm counting on you or it's not gonna be done at all. And that's what David's leading us to see as well. 
The word wash is an interesting word there, wash me. It's used of washing of clothes. So getting them clean, laundering them, scrubbing them. In Leviticus, you can read about how the Lord told Israel to wash and told them when to wash. It's interesting. He says, purge me with hyssop. Because hyssop was used in, if I remember right, in cleansing the leper. Remember the leper in the Old Testament? He was unclean. He was somebody who had diseased skin. Maybe his hair was falling out or he had white spots. And leprosy could also lead to actual, you know, your fingers or your toes falling off. Your flesh is rotting in a sense. And you were regarded as unclean and you had to pronounce to everyone, I am unclean. And you couldn't come in the temple. You were separated from God, separated from his people. And you had to live outside in the dumps. Remember this happened to Job in a sense too. He was struck with affliction. So you have sores on your body. And leprosy could also spread to garments and houses. It it could be caused by mold or rot or fungus. So there's a whole visual here of sight seeing this, but touching it, smelling the sounds. I'm unclean, I'm unclean, stay away. Because the idea was is that you'll get contaminated. It's pollution, it's toxic. And David here is saying about himself, my sin is like leprosy. I am contagious, nasty, disgusting. It's a disease that's destroying me. It's toxic. And David, in a sense, is looking at himself and says, Lord, I'm disgusted at who I am. Who am I? Inside and out, oozing with sin. He looks at his heart. He looks at himself from head to toe, inside, outside, completely diseased with sin and the rot of his heart. He says, I can't make myself clean. He says, I need you to wash me and I don't need you to wash my clothes or my external hands. I need you to wash me from inside and out. And how did they used to do the washing? They didn't have washing machines. They'd have to do that scrubbing over and over and over and over and over again, getting out the grime and the stain. God, David is saying, Lord, scrub me clean. Get rid of it all. Purge me. Take that steel wool that you use on that pan and you hear the scratching against the stainless steel pot and get all of the grime out. Make me clean. Do you want to be clean? David says the Lord will do it. Secondly, image, second image we can look at as well as he says, not simply cleanse me from sin's pollution, but blot out the record of my sins. He says this, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. It's interesting, David says, hide your face from my sins because usually if God hides his face from you, it's a sign of judgment. But notice what David says, don't hide your face from me, but please hide your face from my sins. He's ashamed. He's ashamed. Isn't there a shame and a guilt that comes with sin? I don't know anybody who ultimately, ultimately, sin may feel good initially, but ultimately at the end, you leave feeling grimy and nasty. You don't feel better about yourself because you know what you know? You know you shouldn't have done it. 
You know it's not good. And David is saying, I'm ashamed. I really don't want you to play the reel of my life in front of everybody on these screens. Blot out all my iniquities. David sees his iniquities almost like on a list for everyone to see. All his sins are listed in God's record book. It's like a ledger, right? The checkbook. And God has written down every single crime David has committed. And he knows I'm a debtor who owes a lot to God. A debt that I cannot pay. In ancient Israel, they didn't have books like we have today. They didn't have quick books or Excel or, or things like that. They had leather scrolls. How do you wipe off the ink? You have to get it. You have to get it wet and wipe away. You have to erase what was written on the scroll. You can't backspace. You can't delete. You don't pull out a jar of whiteout. You wouldn't just scribble over it. You wipe it out. Wash it clean. Wipe it away. David is saying, Lord, erase and wipe away my sins. The record against me. The last illustration here we can use that David gives us is one of restoration. He restores us back to him. David says, oh Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. Cause the bones that you have broken to rejoice He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sin had separated David from God. Sure, David could go to the temple, do his duties, but it really didn't bring about a real harmony and a friendship. And David is saying, Lord, I need you to restore me back to you. Give me the joy that comes. See, there's no joy in sin. Sin is not fun. Sin is not clean. But God cleanses us, wipes away our record of sin, and runs to us with open arms and brings us back into the family. He restores our soul. And David expects us to expect a joyful welcome. Remember Jesus used that analogy, that that parable of the father, the prodigal, and the father's waiting. That's the heart of God, kindly disposed to us. So David's praying for all of this. He's asking God to cleanse him, to erase his sin, to restore him back to God. How did God keep his prayer to David? How did God do all of these things, you might ask? How did God save him from his sins? Well, David already knew that God was going to send a deliverer. That had been the hope of humankind from Genesis 3.15, that God would send a savior to rescue mankind from our sin. And God had promised David, especially in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a savior is going to come from him. A king, the son of David. And about 1,000 years after David wrote this psalm, a thousand years after he wrote it for the choir master, a thousand years after David, the righteous one, fell into such scandal, God sent his son and kept his promise. And he was born of a virgin, free from the taint of sin like you and I are. Whereas David was born a sinner, and you, are, you and I are as well, the child Jesus, we're told, is holy. 
from conception. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God without sin, without the stain of sin upon him, without the grime upon him. No blemishes were found in him and he lived a life of complete obedience to God the Father. And David knew, looking forward, and he would have trusted in Christ to come, that Jesus at the end of his life he voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin, a substitute for David's sin. And it's fascinating because the night before his crucifixion, he showed his disciples what he came to do. And he summarized his whole ministry in one act. He took a towel, tied it around his waist, bent down, the Lord of all creation, mind you, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. And they said, what in the world are you doing? And Jesus said this, if I don't wash you, you will not be clean. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. If I don't wash you, you have the stain of sin on you. He was using this as an illustration to say that when we believe upon him, when we trust him and leave behind our old ways and look to him, we will be made clean instantly. We're cleansed and the stain of sin is gone and the disease is healed. You are clean. His blood would cleanse his people from the disease of sin. And on the cross, Jesus was treated like the most disgusting sinner. We're told that he was despised. He was rejected of men. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and say, that's the perfect man. No beauty that we should desire him. But little did we know that he was bearing David's griefs, our sorrows, and your shame. His blood has paid the price for our sins so that our sins are wiped clean from the ledger. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, we are told, nailing it to the cross. We are free, friends. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And afterwards, when he rose from the grave, you know what the first words he said to them? Peace be to you. It's done. It's done. There is salvation in no one else. And David here is pointing to you and giving you the treasure. Jesus Christ our Lord. Not so that you can live your best life now, but so that you can be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled and the stain and the disease of sin and the justification that you so desperately need can be given to you, sent from the Father to you and for you. And he says, take me, I'm yours. Some of us have been believers for a long time. And we wonder, yeah, this is great for people who don't know the Lord. But remember, David had known the Lord and had a decent walk with the Lord before this. Pride goeth before destruction, friends. This is why we come up to this pulpit every single Sunday and talk about sin. And this is why we talk about salvation because we always have to be reminded of our sin because we'll tend to be prideful and we need to be reminded of Christ so that we will remember that grace really is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or are you saying that saved a wretch like that guy over there and that guy over there and that guy over there? Saved a wretch like me. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone. 
can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Free grace. Well, he's showed us our sin, but he's shown us the Savior given for all of us. Lastly, he leads us in song to gratitude for God's grace in verses 12, excuse me, not 12, 13 through 19. He, I'm gonna break it down in three ways. Um, we'll see how that works. Um, first of all, teaching. Teaching, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You save me, Lord. You transform me. I can't save myself. I can't buy heaven. But if you save me and you transform me, I will be so grateful to you, Lord. I will teach transgressors your ways. David wants us to know that we must proclaim the good news of Christ to each other. And I will teach transgressors about the way that salvation is found through grace alone, apart from works of the law. The way that people are saved comes through faith, and faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Well, how does the word of God come to us? Through people. I've heard it said that the gospel comes to us on the lips of another. None of us were zapped into the faith. We heard somebody else tell us about the faith. We heard our parents talk to us about the grace that's found in Jesus. We sing songs about the grace of Christ. We pray together about them. As a parent, you should be teaching your children the gospel. God is using you to bring sinners back to himself. As a husband or a wife, tell your spouse about the gospel, how God cleanses us, washes us, makes us clean. Wherever God has placed you, God will use you to speak the word of God to others and know it's God's work. He's working through you. One of my favorite illustrations in my personal life to come up with this is, is I was talking to a, a man that was, uh, had been a, a, a member of the church that I had pastored and he was an old godly man in his 80s. Godly, loved the Lord Jesus, honest about his sin. And one of the things he told me, he was dying of cancer. And he told me, he said, sometimes I just don't feel like a Christian. You're thinking, this guy's one of the stalwarts. He says, I don't feel like a Christian because I just want this to be over with and I'm sick and tired of it. I'm not patient. He, was, he wasn't making an excuse for the fact that it's, it's still his sin, even under those circumstances, he was saying, for me to be impatient with the Lord. And you could see it, really it's bothered him. He's like, I wonder if I'm something like, you know, I wonder if I'm a Christian or whatever. And I told him, and this is not special about me, this is just saying the power of the gospel. I just told him, well, Ron, Christ died for that too. Christ knew that you were gonna be impatient while you're dying of cancer in your 80s after living a life trying to love the Lord. You know what? He died for that sin too. And it comforted him. We have to do that with each other. People are confessing sins back and forth to each other all the time. It's just that we're not listening. And instead of saying, you know what? Yeah, I understand. That's hard. Maybe sometimes we need to tell people, you know what? But Christ died for that too. Forgiveness of sins. Secondly, praising the Lord. He says in verses, there is 13, or excuse me, 
uh, 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He says, Lord, you open my lips. But notice, you have to do it, and my mouth will acknowledge who you are. We can't make God more glorious or more splendorous and more majestic, but we can acknowledge who he is and declare who he is. And he says, Lord, I know what you want. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. In other words, Lord, I know I could do a bunch of things that people think are really super Christian things to do, but they wouldn't matter to you. I could show up at church every day of the week, do all, be in all the programs, go on all sorts of mission trips. I can make all sorts of sacrifices for you, good things to do, but those by themselves will never buy my love or buy, buy a, a right relationship with you. He says, but here's what you won't despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this heart? Well, it's simply what David's described. To despair of yourself, but count on God's grace in Jesus Christ. To despair of your good works and your good intentions and all the things that you think are so great about yourself and to trust solely that 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Calvary, God reconciled the world to himself. That's what we count on. That's what I'm putting all my chips on. What are you putting your chips on? Jesus plus something else? Jesus plus your reformation? Jesus plus doing better? Or everything on him? That's a contrite heart. Broken for sin, but trusting him. And lastly, teaching, praising. Lastly, praying. He asked the Lord, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. So see, the sacrifices are a good thing, but just not if I'm trying to buy God's love. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Oh Lord, do good to the church. Do good to your people. Bless your people and may your blessing be upon them. This is what David's leading us to to know our sin, because when we know our sin, we're ready to count on the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. And only whenever we know our sin and then we've counted on the grace of Jesus Christ, are we ready then to live a life of gratitude for grace received? Those, these three things go hand in hand all throughout the psalm. And as we live our Christian life, it's like a spiral. We learn our guilt, then we experience grace, then we're grateful. But then the Lord brings us back around again just to make sure we've remembered it. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. To remember this, that he is our savior. He loves us and he wants us to trust him. Let's pray together and ask God to seal his word to our hearts and our minds. Our heavenly father, we thank you for the grace that is found in Jesus Christ who cleanses us from our sins. We want to be clean. We know that he can make the unclean clean, that he touched the leper and said, the leper said, Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. Jesus said, I will be clean. He has erased our debt and restored us back to you, Father. We pray that as your people, this would be the heartbeat of our religion, not the periphery, but the heartbeat, the sum and the substance of it. And we pray for those who don't know you here today, Lord, who are not clean, whose record of debt still stands against them, that they would trust in the grace that's found in your son. For Christ's sake, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Spencer from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.